Welcome once again to the Journal of Adolescent and Adult Literacy podcast. I am Matt Sroka, Clinical Assistant Professor of Literacy at Mercer University here in beautiful Macon, Georgia. I'm also an Associate Editor of JAL and, of course, most relevant to you all, I'm the host of the Journal of Adolescent and Adult Literacy podcast that you are listening to. Technology becomes more and more interwoven into educational spaces. How do we as educators utilize digital tools in ways that are both effective and beneficial for ourselves and for our students? In this episode, I chat with Dr. Jocelyn Washburn and Dr. Susie Myers about the term connective literacies in their article titled Adolescent Perspectives about their digital connective literacies. In this episode, we explore what are connective literacies and what is the connective literacies framework. We investigate what we can learn from adolescents and their experiences and their perceptions toward technology and how it's used in the classroom. And we close by discussing how educators can help students navigate these connective and digital literacies in the classroom. If this conversation interests you, I'd strongly encourage you to check out the full article, which has been made free to read, and there's a link to the article in the show notes. Uh, so check that out. Also, just a friendly reminder in the show notes, speaking of show notes, Literacy Insights are there. This is a new resource by JAL. They're free, one-page, printable, organized by topics. Right now, I have Creative Literacies, Teaching and Reading Complex Texts, Using Personal Narratives to Empower Multilingual Learners. Those three Literacy Insights are available and more are coming. This is a great resource to use in your classroom if you're a high school teacher and want to do some, some kind of personal PD or PD with your department, or if you're a college educator and you're preparing free service teachers, this is a great resource to use. So for example, I have a literacy insights on using personal narratives to empower multilingual learners. If you're talking about kind of multilingual or emergent bilingual or multilingual learners in your classroom, this is very easy to use. Um, I don't want to, you know, spell out your whole lesson for you. I don't want to do your lesson for you. All you need to do is kind of take this article or, or, or take this resource on there are four articles, recent articles, three of them are written in 2022. So recent articles. Um, and then if I were doing this in my classroom and I have done this in my classroom, you kind of jigsaw it, right? And give a group of students one of the four articles, have them read it and then come back to class and share out about the, their article. I also have discussion questions on, on this, on the literacy insights. So you can put those discussion starters up on the, on the PowerPoint, on the Google slides, whatever you use. So they share out about the article and then you can spend the class, the rest of class time discussing. Um, those, those discussion questions, which kind of connect all the articles together and talk about this topic around personal narratives and, uh, empowering multilingual learners. And then for kind of extended work, um, there's also YouTube videos and podcasts linked. Actually, the Journal of Not Literacy podcast, there's two episodes. So you have your students choose one of the episodes to, to, to listen to, to kind of extend the work as well. There, there's a just, I just gave you guys a lesson plan. I don't, I don't want to do your job for you, but. There you go. It's, it's, it's that simple. And so again, right now I have creative literacy, teaching and reading complex texts and using personal narratives to empower multilingual learners, um, ready to go, ready to use. So those are available in the show notes. We'll take you a link to the JAW website where you can access all of those literacy insights and more are coming. Finally, a friendly reminder that if you enjoy the content of this podcast, if you enjoy these conversations, please go on over to Apple Podcasts, Spotify, wherever you listen to, to, to the show and rate and review the show. All right, let's get to today's episode. Dr. Jocelyn Washburn is an assistant research professor and director of professional development at the University of Kansas Center for Research on Learning. 
The research focuses on adolescent literacy, evidence-based practices, professional learning models, and educator collaboration. She's been a special education teacher, instructional coach, district literacy coordinator, and a regional technical assistant coordinator. She's currently co-designing research-based instructional tools to support connective and digital literacies. Through federally funded research, she is designing, testing, and scaling an adaptive professional learning model for coaches and teachers, implementing evidence-based writing instruction and assessment practices. In her role as Director of Professional Development, she provides leadership to International Network of Strategic Instructional Model, SIM, professional developers. Susan Myers, Dr. Susan Myers, has worked in adolescent and K-12 through literacy education as a high school English teacher, a literacy specialist, a state education agency, literacy consultant, and PD provider, and currently as an assistant research professor at the University of Kansas Center for Research and Learning. Her research interests include virtual and alternative PD models, virtual coaching, connective and digital literacies, literacy curriculum and instruction, and adolescent writing instruction. She and colleagues co-developed a virtual coaching model and managed a virtual coaching network with a goal to make instructional coaching more accessible and affordable. She is currently funded to design and develop an online adaptive professional learning model for adolescent writing instruction, design and manage professional learning and coaching system for a nationwide IES study on high school transition programs and test the impact of adolescent writing instructional routine with high school English teachers. With that, here is my conversation with Dr. Jocelyn Washburn and Dr. Susie Myers. I hope you enjoy. Some perspectives about the digital and connective literacies. I appreciate you both for joining us. Uh, can we first get started? Maybe we can start with you, Jocelyn, talking a little bit about your background and how you got interested in this work. Sure. Um, so this began uh, for me when I was reflecting about the practices that I used many years ago when I was a special education teacher. I co-taught English 10. And the teacher who I worked with had a wonderful uh, research process that students used that was really physical, kinesthetic. Um, they would pick their topic for research and we would take them to the library. They would select books and they would use index cards. And for each um, detail that they found in the book, they would paraphrase directly onto an index card. And then the, the next piece is really important because they would then take all of these index cards and they would sort them into main ideas and that helped them to synthesize across many sources and then produce a, a well-written paper. And this physical process helped all of the learners participate in that process. And so I thought about how has that changed? What are the advantages and disadvantages of bringing in an online reading and research process in today's classrooms? And so I, I became curious about that. And also because uh, Susie and I work at a research center, we think about what um, instructional tools we have available and analyze what's missing that we can still provide to help teachers with using what research recommends our best practices or research validated practices. And so that analysis process in combination with updating how is learning and researching online uh, relevant today started me thinking about this and I shared it with Susie. And when you hear about her why, and how she got started, you'll see how we uh, work really well together through our um, dialogue to 
create new ideas together. And so I came at it from more of a academic research in the classroom perspective. And then uh, you'll be able to hear about um, Susie's angle and how they really do work together. Um, and so the, the last piece I want to share about is when we, um, when we go through that analysis process, we look at a couple pieces of what does the research say uh, are the recommended practices, but we also look at what are the setting demands that students are faced with. And so we, we wanted to be able to then learn about what, uh, what are students expected to do in their assignments. And then we, in addition to that, we think about what are their current skills. And so in that process, uh, we wanted to really analyze and learn more about our curiosities so that we could develop something later that would help teachers and their students. All right, thanks, Jocelyn. And, and you referenced Susie's why. Susie, so what is your why here? <laughs> what, what's your background here with this? Yeah, um, like Jocelyn, I you know started in education as a classroom teacher. I was a high school English teacher in the general education classroom. So um, I was always really intrigued by the ways that students were um, engaging with technology. I remember when I was talking with a student once and I was so confused because she was talking about another student writing something mean on her wall. And I was like... <laughs> Why would you, if she, if she, was she your friend? No. Why would she be in your house writing on your wall? You know, so it's just this whole like <laughs> confusion and question. I need to know more about this Facebook. And I don't even know Facebook probably doesn't, I don't think they use that language anymore, writing on the wall, but um, that's that's where they were. And so now, um, you know, as, as parents, uh, Jocelyn and I are both parents of teenagers and, and preteens and uh, I continue to be just so intrigued by the ways that they use um, connected spaces um, to communicate in all kinds of ways, not only in the words that they're saying, and but the space that they're choosing to use to have particular communications and the different grammars that are at play in all of those connected spaces. You know, my, my daughter was once telling me about um, leaving someone unopened as a kind of a power move in, you know, in their ways of communicating. So I'm just totally intrigued by the grammars of all of these different platforms. And, um, you know, as, and then as a teacher, you know, how could I at, at the time, you know, with the technologies that were in play when I was still in the classroom, and then how are teachers now with my children connecting with the ways that they're communicating in those spaces and really, uh, calling attention to it in kind of a metacognitive way about, you know, look at what you're doing. Um, you know, isn't it interesting how you're communicating in this way in this space, but then it means something different when you're choosing this particular method of communicating and kind of uh, connecting students in their thinking about, wow, you know, becoming really aware of all of those things. And so, um, as Jocelyn was saying, we're we're having these conversations about our work in the in the classroom and with teachers in the classroom, but also able to um, think about the connections in a really real way with students' worlds and how they're communicating both inside and outside of school. So that's really my what really intrigues me about <laughs> this connected literacy connected literacies work. Yeah, that's that's really interesting because sometimes I know with academic 
in the classroom, we sometimes grumble about the lack of reading or the lack of literacy skills our students have. But sometimes we talk about specifically academic literacies because there's a whole lot happening, you should point out, in terms of literacy outside the classroom that sometimes and sometimes not um, comes into the classroom. So you reference connective literacies, you reference connective spaces. Um, I'm intrigued by those phrases. Can you unpack a little more about what we mean by connective literacies and where that comes from? Yeah, so as Jocelyn and I were first coming together on this idea and just sort of letting our curiosity drive us, I guess, in what we were reading about, um, we read an article by Nichols and Stornaiello uh, in Media and Technology from 2019. And um, they kind of talked about how and what we were finding in the literature as well is often um, articles about digital literacy, digital um, literacy skills, those kinds of things. They were really hyper focused on the actual technology. And that's what we were finding as well. But in this article that we read, um, Nichols and Stornaiello um, talk about how um, let's see if I can get, get the actual quote, that current uses of the term digital literacy, they sometimes include both uh, digital skills and then digital practices, descriptions of those digital practices, uh, but that those perspectives maybe aren't broad enough sometimes to really address all of the challenges um, that our students are facing with these connective technologies. So they used that term connective technologies. And we started thinking about uh, what would a term be that would be more inclusive of all of those, um, you know, we agree with their call for thinking about those digital literacies in a more expansive way. So we were thinking about how, um, how adolescents might think of those connected technologies. Maybe they're not digital. How are they moving in and out of, of connecting those? So we're thinking about um, that term connective, um, connective literacies as really this new conceptualization of digital literacies uh, that we thought could be more inclusive of all of the strands that we're now finding ourselves exploring in conversations around digital literacies. Yeah, I think that makes sense in terms of kind of these digitally connected spaces and um, both kind of how they use that inside the classroom, outside the classroom, um, right? Because digital literacies can mean a whole lot of things <laughs> from, from using a laptop, typing skills to, to more advanced work. Uh, all right, so you come up with this connective literacies conceptual framework. Can you guys unpack what, what this framework is? Yes, so our connective literacies framework, it starts, if you picture more narrowly, and this is um, beginning a beginning point of how are students uh, acquiring learning, and that may be in and outside of school, thinking about what they're learning, and then expressing their new understandings based on their learning. And so at the center of our conceptual framework would be these uh, really skills that we can picture happening. Now, we might not be able to observe exactly what's going on in the mind under the thinking place, but we are familiar with this idea of acquiring learning, thinking about new learning, and then expressing yourself. But then with our connective piece, we want to situate that within uh, other 
aspects of connective um, literacies. And so one place that connects to is the fluid, uh, fluid movement between and among acquiring, thinking, and expressing, but also the influence of offline literacies with online literacies. So this is partly our um, interest in knowing are the tools that are available by learning in an online space, are they more or less advantageous to learners when they're engaged in acquiring thinking and expressing themselves? Is that influenced by their offline literacy skills or are they actually more of a mediator and it helps to even compensate by having access to some of the accessibility tools when they're in an online space? And so it's um, there's a relationship an interaction between the offline and online literacy skills. Then going even broader, connecting outward from there, this sits within content and disciplinary literacy. And so when students are using these connective literacy skills across content areas or modifying them to be specifically fitting within particular discipline areas, then that is um, even a bigger picture of how are they using these skills. And then, of course, you mentioned a moment ago um, an important point about initial access to it, their information and media literacy, their use of technology, and how that can connect to and make it possible for students to use connective literacy skills. And then who are they as, a, as an individual within this space, so their digital citizenship, when they are acquiring learning and they're thinking about it, who they're, um, who they're following online or who they are willing to be influenced by then can inform what they actually think about that information. And then when they express themselves, who is their audience? And do they have an awareness of their audience? As well as, say, data privacy issues and this bigger picture that um, in how all of this connects. And so being a learner in today's uh, classroom or just existing in today's world, you're using all of these skills connected in a fluid way across these spaces. And so this is where we definitely were talking about uh, when Susie and I were exchanging ideas uh, about all of these different parts, we were thinking that they are all connected. And so that's, that piece was really important to us to include in our, um, in our conceptual framework. Yeah. Lot to, a lot to unpack there, Jocelyn. I hope we unpack some of those ideas um, at a later point in this interview as well. But I'll just say here, it's, it's really nice to, I, I think all teachers are struggling with this, how we think about and talk about the use of technology in within our classrooms. We know we should be doing it. What exactly should we should be doing with? I think it's really good to have these kind of explicit conversations with our students and with each other about exactly what's happening and what we want to get out of our use of these digital tools. And um, I mentioned before this in the, uh, that in the show notes, you can access the article and the article has a nice visual of what you just described um, of this connective literacy conceptual framework. All right, I'm gonna, show, I'm gonna show self-control though and not get into some of the questions I have about offline versus online and um, the use of disciplinary specific ways of teaching within technology. I hope we get there, uh, but, so, but first, Let's let's get into your study. Uh, what was? Can you guys talk about 
what your study was, the the methodology of it? Yes. So we, um, because we wanted to begin from the beginning with an exploratory study, we did take a qualitative approach to understanding uh, adolescents' lived experiences with their connective literacy skills right now. And so we conducted two focus groups, and it was in May 2021. So it was the end of the second partial year for students to have um, lived and learned during COVID. And so they, at that point in time, had hybrid learning experiences of either part day at home with online learning and then half day in the classroom in a physical space or some students were um, all online and it varied and even changed throughout that year and a half. So we knew that when we were having these focus group conversations, we they had a lot of experiences to draw from in their increased use of actual technology in their learning. So we um, that we had nine eighth graders, and we did um, have their focus group separate because we wanted them to be comfortable. We ended up with two. Uh, friend groups. We we didn't say it this way in the manuscript exactly, but that helped to increase their comfort because we did prompt them to have dialogue and to have one idea build upon another person's idea. And um, they really did do that. It's important to know that this is a convenient sample and it was an exploratory study. Um, we we have uh, students in our group that their parents and themselves, through a initial input survey, characterized our learners in our group as average or above average in reading and school performance. They had equal or greater than their peers access to internet at home. They also had access to personal internet connected devices. And they also were seen as being equal to or even more responsible than their peers with their internet use. So our group, when you think about our findings, this is our best case scenario, right? If we want to have students have access to using the internet for their purposes, when they, for the best reasons possible, this is who we're asking. Uh, What is learning like for you and your uh, connective literacy skills? So in our our method, we had two 90-minute focus groups. And Susie and I shared uh, facilitating um, each separate from our um, the group of, of students who we were more familiar with so that one person was facilitating while the other took notes and um, was observing. And then we asked them open-ended questions as well as we have them take two poll questions. And then we also gave them two scenarios and asked them to think aloud how they would um, make decisions on approaching a specific assignment that would require their use of online tools. In our analysis, we used the transcripts and went through a coding process and we reviewed each other's codes to um, discuss any convergences and divergences in what we were finding. But one important part is to remember, and we had to remember this, was that This was really discourse analysis because their ideas did build upon or they even disagreed. And the the adolescents were comfortable enough to say, I agree with that. I'll add this. And they would add another point or, no, I don't agree. I see it this way. 
And so in our coding process, we had to uh, keep that in mind that ideas were building upon ideas. Yeah, I think the, so you, uh, you uh, talk with ninth graders about questions around their connective literacies, uh, how they use these digital tools in their own life um, and their preferences and how they use it in the classroom and some of their preferences within the classroom with digital tools. I think it's, it's an important study because when we talk about, and we talk a lot about, we want to make these connections between home literacies and school literacies. And digital literacies is a large component of that. And as you guys say, connective literacy is a large co co component of that. But then to then do it, to, to, to make that connection between home and school, like we have to know what our students are doing. <laughs> we have to know how they're using it. Or how can we make those connections? All right. So you uh, conduct these group studies. Um, can, can, or you conduct these group interviews. And you analyze the, do some discourse analysis and look at the um, uh, analyze conversations. What did you guys come to find out about students and how they view digital technologies in the classroom? Well, I can start um, with this. We had, um, in looking at the different codes and, and organizing them, uh, we came up with five, we, we found five major um, findings. So, um, some of them will not be surprising at all for your listeners. So uh, the first one, for example, I don't think will be surprising at all that student choice is important for connective literacies development. So um, a couple of things our students were telling us was that if they're if they don't have any choices or if their um, teachers really limit uh, what they can do, that that it kills their creativity. <laughs> And doesn't inspire them to um, to do whatever it is or, or to even learn. They kind of um, mentally check out a little bit. So, um, and they also shared that that many of their teachers are doing that. Um, so that was really um, nice to hear. That uh, several of them shared. Um, for example, one of them said their English teacher. Uh, was giving them different options for how they expressed their learning. They could do poetry. They could do some kind of creative piece. They could produce a podcast. They could review, you know, they were giving them all of these different options for how to express their learning. And um, the the student said, you know, if I had been made to do a podcast, for example, I I personally wouldn't have been able to do a good job, the student was sharing. So they really appreciated being able to express their learning in a way that they were comfortable with. So um, that probably wasn't a, a wasn't a total shocker to either of us, and probably won't be to your listeners either. But yeah, but a, a good reminder, I think, for the importance of choice in a classroom. I, I do wonder about like we know pretty much across the board that choice is a good thing uh, when it comes to to reading assignments, writing assignments, if we're able to embed choice in there, it's usually a positive thing because they're more invested because they can choose what they want to write about and what interests them. Is it, when it comes to connective literacies, do we think it's more important with choice? I wonder because you mentioned the quote about the podcast mm -hmm. and uh, maybe there's, I don't know, students have different strengths in terms of, of, of literacies and digital tools that they can employ? Uh, and do you think that the choice factor becomes, I don't know, even more important in some ways within connective literacies than, than in other areas? I mean, Jocelyn can jump in here too. I, I, I don't know that I think it's more important. Um, 
Maybe. I mean, for me as a, as a teacher, I think, um, we have to be comfortable with not knowing all the choices. So maybe it's like choice in a little bit different way that if we share our learning goals with students and here's what I really want you to, to do, come up with, um, you know, here's, here are the things that I want to be able to see in whatever end product you come, come to class with. Um, that students will find the technologies and find the the ways to express their learning that we might not even know about. So even if I give, you know, you can create a podcast as a choice. Well, maybe there's this, uh, I mean, one of my children was just showing me how he'd made a, um, an advertisement, you know, which I, is something that I used to have students do to teach them these, you know, persuasive, um, you know, strategies and things. Um, but in his, he had an AI app that I had no clue existed, change his voice uh, in the advertisement because he had done some research on knowing the, the people that he was trying to appeal to. And so he was thinking about how, what kind of a voice would be better instead of my, you know, 21 year old voice, you know, they're going to know I'm a kid, uh, what sounds more mature, you know, so I think they'll, they'll surprise us in really fun and interesting ways that, wow, you know, I had no idea that this existed. And if we, maybe it's more important in that way that our choices are um, maybe not so defined, but we put a lot of pressure on ourselves as teachers to come up with all the different ways that students could do. And I think, I think sometimes they come up with really amazing ways to show us that we didn't even know about. And I, I would add in, in yeah. our um, findings here that we noticed across the connective literacies framework that if choice was removed in one area, so if they were limited in the acquiring and they had to, they were only given three sources that they had to use, then that would harm how they performed in the expressing aspect. And so, or the other way around, they were, they had to create a podcast. And um, then they could have open-ended choices, but they felt limited. It was very interesting. Even so they really wanted more choices than they were currently experiencing. And they would say that it would harm their motivation to have too many restrictions. However, I will pair it with that if you don't have, say, freedom within form, then you don't know what you can choose from, or sometimes that can even be stifling. You don't know where to begin or you have roadblocks. So just having that partnership with students to say, where are the choices or what are your ideas for how, when you know the goal of the, the learning task, um, where can you add in your, um, your own decisions and where might you need more support from the teacher to give some suggest suggested sources or suggested outcomes or the how-to with, I want to be able to do this, but I'm not sure how to achieve that. And so I think it really has to be listening to adolescents in the classroom and to know where the right place is for the, and the right amount of choice to offer. Yeah, that's a good point. That, and that freedom to express the information that you acquired in kind of your own way. It, it's true. Like we can't, as educators, I think, know every digital tool that's out there that exists that students can use, right? And 
And it's it's very possible that students have been exposed to other quality digital tools in other classrooms or at home or somewhere else that they can certainly incorporate into their into lessons. So so to say that we want you to, you know, express your information using this tool or this tool might even be limiting when there's so many other tools that they may be more comfortable with and they can share you and then share other classmates with that now all of a sudden you have another tool or students have another tool that they can use that you would never have known if you didn't give them the freedom to express it how, how they want to express it. Uh, I think that those are, are valid points. And and yeah, to Jocelyn's point, I could completely see how, right, if, if I didn't have choice in my topic or something, how then that could impact me when I went to go research this information. I may do it more begrudgingly, knowing that I was forced to do this topic that I really didn't want to do to begin with. And then when I ultimately express what I know about that topic, I could, again, not do it as well as if maybe I was choosing something that I wanted to, 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 to explore or in a way that I wanted to explore it. Right. Um, or had some saying in at least. I think too, and I, I don't think this is represented in our other findings that we're going to talk through, but um, one of my favorite stories that came out was that um, in um, the group that I facilitated, the kid was talking about limitations of school um, research resources. So they they were mm-hmm. limited in in how they could search for things online just by the online, you know, databases that the school um, subscribed to. (laughs) And so he couldn't find anything that was on the topic that he really, really wanted to research. And so he's like, I ended up with the cuttlefish. I just had to put it. It's like, that's a title right there. Like, I you know, so funny he's like so i know all these things about a cuttlefish i really don't care about cuttlefish but it was the only thing i could find in this school <laughs> school database so kind of funny yeah and that if we're limited to that one database right we're kind of we have to use what's what's there yeah. uh, all right so let's get to another finding so um this was really interesting I, and i think oftentimes when we talk about technology um it can become overwhelming very quickly because we think we have to jump all in with both feet and all, you know jump in the deep end. And if we're using technology, then every, but everything has to be technology. Uh, but what students told us was that they really appreciate both offline and online resources that are focused on the learning goal. So no matter what format it comes in, if it's a paper, you know, that a teacher is handing to the kids and saying, here's a, here's one way that you can outline the information that you find in your online research. They really appreciated that. So, you know, they talked about, you know, it's a really nice place to put all of my information that I'm going to write about so I don't lose it. You know, for them, this might have been a liter- <laughs> a piece of paper that the teacher was handing them to outline their ideas. Um, they talked about, um graphic organizers, different kinds of graphic organizers that their teachers were um, introducing them to uh, and how much those things helped them with their writing and translating the things that they were learning online into what they wanted to say about those things. Uh, They use the term blueprint. It's kind of like a blueprint. And um, several of them shared different mnemonics that their teachers had given them. TPAC was one that was shared and, and, you know, she just, the student just was able to recite what the T-E-A-T-E-P-A-C meant and, and how that was helpful 
uh, in organizing that information. So I think the lesson there was just that um, don't throw out everything that has worked. Um, you know, as teachers, we don't need to just say, okay, everything's technology based now. We can't use these really helpful things that have been that we've been using for 10, 20, 30 years. Um, those things can still be helpful, even though the students may be accessing the information differently. Yeah, Jocelyn opened up with the story about, you know, using note cards and research. Yeah. And can I say just as a, as a personal learner, my personal life, I still have a stack of note cards. I use note cards for a lot of different things all the time for organizing things to, to, to um, you know, I remember writing on my, my dissertation for my lit review and had note cards everywhere. And that was helpful for me. And I had all the stuff online too, but it was helpful for me to just see it visually with mm -hmm. note cards. So yeah, I think that's comforting to teachers that we can use the technology, we can use these online resources, but the graphic organizers, the other things that we've had that we've done traditionally on paper, mm -hmm. this is not a call to get rid of all that stuff, right? This is a call to, mm -hmm. to how can we supplement that, but, but still keep some of the tools that have worked for us in the classroom. Yeah, I think it's a lesson for school leaders too, because I, I think sometimes they're in a difficult position that you know, a district has made a sizable investment in technology and they they want to see, obviously, uh, that that's been worth it, you know, but mm. to to do that in a just keeping in mind that some things um, is not going to be helpful or some students still need that support of a, a more. I forget what Jocelyn said, more, more manipulative, you know, if putting it in a physical space and really moving it around is going to ultimately help them. Um, not that they're not still using the device, but we don't have to abandon all of our tried and true methods too. <laughs> yeah. And some sometimes it's more effective and sometimes because student preferences too, right? I think mm -hmm. sometimes mm -hmm. students have a preference and I've seen it, like I've seen, I go in classrooms and especially you see this a lot with maybe online textbooks that's been turned into not just online textbooks but now everything's done in this single using this textbook online and then they has embedded questions with it and so they go the entire class period just on their computers on this specific website on this textbook mm -hmm. uh, which which sometimes is fine but also sometimes maybe we think about other ways to 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 bring in those other outside resources that have been proven effective and can use that can kind of continue to use those Right. All right, right. So we have student choice. We have uh, we can still stick with some offline <laughs> tools that we know work effectively. Uh, what was the third finding? Well, kind of it might seem like the opposite of that, but it's <laughs> not really um, that the students really appreciated the um, improved efficiency that online technology mm -hmm. and tools provide for them. And maybe not always in the way that we as teachers, we can go down a, a you know, more negative path with this and say, well, yeah, you know, they're just copying and pasting their whole, their whole essay or whatever. And they did mention things like copy paste, but more in the sense of like, I can copy that and paste it into some notes that I'm going to go back to later. What the students were telling us was that these um, this appreciation for for this efficiency wasn't really about skipping over the thinking. You know, they they were really interested in thinking deeply about the stuff that they were learning in school, and these um, technology tools provided them sort of a faster way to get to the thinking, or a way to engage with the thinking differently. 
Um, one of my favorite stories was from a young man who was talking about um, just engaging in a in a conversation and how having his phone helped him. He's like, I had no idea what these people were talking about. And I was quickly able, I mean, you just kind of described, I kind of leaned over here. I Googled what it was that, you know, that they were talking about. And then I was able to join the conversation because suddenly I got caught up really quickly as to what they were talking about. And I was able to enter that conversation. So that was a really nice illustration for me as in terms of this connective literacies, like an illustration of how students are not only engaged in a physical space with others and with these very um, tangible ways of communicating, and they're not solely engaged in this digital space either, where they're communicating through you know, networked uh, communities and, and, and whatnot, they're in both um, much of the, much of the time. And that that's a good thing, you know, that they can move back and forth easily um, without us even, even prompting or whatever. The kid was like, I really want to talk about what they're talking about. I want to be engaged in this conversation. What are they talking about? I'm going to use my technology to find out quickly. And then I'm going to engage in thinking and talking with my peers. And that's really cool. So yeah, I like that. The I was just in a classroom uh, two weeks ago, and they were talking about like femininity in the 1880s. And the teacher mentioned something about while the men were off golfing, and like a student said, "Wait, were men in America golfing in the 1880s? Like when was golf even invented, and when did it come to America? And what could have been right this, um, you know, long research project to find some resources? Uh, the teacher just said, hey, "Some Google." kind of the history of golf in America or something. And so it became a really efficient way to kind of add some clarification or context to this conversation. Also showing how kind of, you know, inquiry and just that choice factor again, right? Where students kind of, oh, this is something I find interesting, but we can do it in a way that's kind of quick and efficient. Mm -hmm. And online tool does that. Uh, also the idea of disciplinary literacy, right? How do we use these literacies in these different content areas? And I think in how do we use them, right, as just individuals who have jobs and often our online use is done for the sake of efficiency, right? So that mm -hmm. that that makes sense to me. Yeah, I, I think another really, um, really important thing was they they really recognized the helpfulness that, you know, was not available, at least when I was in school, of being able to just hover over a word and find out the meaning, mm -hmm. you know. Yeah. A, and I think, you know, I, as a teacher, had those experiences where sometimes I didn't recognize that the the problem was a vocabulary problem. You know, if students weren't really able to understand the meaning of a particular phrase or a poem or whatever, um, once I figured out, oh, the student doesn't understand this one word, you know, and then once they understood that one word, the whole poem just opened up for them. Um that's something that's that they recognized as being a real help to them, that they were not held back by um, not understanding, you know, individual words that they, they liked that they're able to very quickly um, just hover over something or look it up really quick. And then they're able to get to that meaning and deeper thinking um, because they understand what they're supposed to be thinking about. I think this highlights a point about um, where we came into this study as uh, digital um, immigrants 
and the students are digital natives. And so Mm -hmm. they are integrating the use of technology constantly in their world. And so their teachers also, and this can be a place where teachers can learn from the students because a lot of teachers, I think Susie um, had found some statistics that the majority of teachers are older than 40. And maybe that's going to be less and less true with the teacher shortages of, of the recent years. Um, however, that does mean that the students are uh, perhaps more proficient in a wider range of technologies and than their teachers. And so um, they were really interested in how, how to use um, their access to technology for learning. And it was about the how and what would be most efficient. Um, for them to achieve their learning goal. And I think that was really um, a hopeful piece of when we were listening to their stories and they would say, well, I, um, I prefer to use voice to text because that's more efficient for me to get my ideas out of my mind. Then I can edit and revise my work. And so th- that's something that the student certain that one student realized on her own that was a more efficient way to use uh, technology tools for her mm-hmm. yeah i don't know if we have enough as teachers if we have enough conversation with students about why we use certain tools right like why why would why someone would use the voice feature why someone would take notes on the pdf as opposed to print it out and take notes mm-hmm. and not that the one way is more effective than the other but why and, and talking about and, and helping students to navigate what's kind of works best for them. Uh, I, I think we need to have more of those kind of explicit conversations instead of saying kind of this is the way everyone should take notes or this is the way everyone should, should do this. Here are the tools we have available to us. Here's one thing you could do. This works well for some students. Think about if this could work well for you. Mm-hmm. Um, and those, because you're teaching both digital skills there, um, but also just um, helping them to have more ownership of their learning and figure out what what works best for them. Yeah. All right, we, so yeah, go ahead. We have a couple more findings. I think, Jess, yeah. you want to talk about these? Yeah, so our, uh, our fourth finding, uh, we have five. We, our fourth mm-hmm. finding was that the students had a, a strong sense of efficacy for identifying misinformation. And we were really, uh, you know, it was a pleasant, surprise because some of the literature that we had read that early adolescents actually take a lot of information if it's on the screen as as solid source of information and that they're not really analyzing that source. And so we weren't necessarily expecting them to share with us some of the strategies their teachers had taught, taught them to uh, identify misinformation and also how to address it with their peers. And so they talked about the CRAP test. And um, that's a, an acronym um, that helps them look at the, the source and how reliable is it. And they would follow these steps. And they kept referring to how they would use that um, when they were uh, researching online. Or even in a social media space, they would see information posted and they would think about this. So it really started to internalize for them. And they shared with us, how if we, we, one of the scenarios that we posed to them is 
what would you do? Walk us through how you would handle if you were faced with misinformation that one of your peers had posted in a classroom learning experience. And so the, the students across both focus groups shared different techniques they would use because they were aware of how they needed to be sensitive to the person who had shared the misinformation, rejecting their questioning of it um, if they were not polite in how they approached that person. And so they um, said, what I would do, this is one of the quotes, what I would do, I would first comment something that they said that was correct or that I agreed with. And then I would let them know that I think something they said was wrong and share why. And they talked about how they would basically um, say it in a way that the person who had posted the, the incorrect information was more likely to actually pay attention or hear about um, another perspective. And so that was something that was uh, really nice to hear that they had confidence in how they would address it. Um, we did notice that one area with the craft test <laughs> is that it's for analyzing a single source. And so another area for growth in the future could be for students to think about then the corroboration across sources. Even if they are faced with uh, reliable sources, how can they synthesize their ideas um, from different sources? And so that's a part that we've, we noticed for possible for future um, research and considerations in the classroom, since they had become very skilled in using the crap test. <laughs> is that crap test? Is that something that was that was done in their school in their classroom that they learned about? Yes, and they all knew it. So it was definitely something that multiple teachers oh. had been using. Yeah, I like that. Uh, and and I, I really appreciate your question about how to communicate with someone who is um, committing to the misinformation because not only do we want our students to be able to obviously identify when misinformation happens, but in a society filled with misinformation, it is very likely that their friends or people they know or family members, right, will be part mm -hmm. of the this misinformation. And we struggle, I struggle, <laughs> how to communicate with people who are saying things that you feel are blatantly false. And so um, equipping, and, and I think at a young age, helping students to, to communicate with people who have their different views uh, and you feel who are have incorrect views is, is an important kind of skill to do in a kind of respectful way. So that's that's a very encouraging finding right there. Yes. What about our fifth finding? Okay, so our fifth finding at first was, a, I think, a little confusing for us because it seemed to be um, that the students were sharing such variation with us. However, what the finding is, is that they have awareness that their motivation and their focus for reading in different formats, it fluctuates. And that awareness is the key part of the finding. And so the examples that they were sharing with us was that it would shift based on if they were reading for a, a narrative or an informative text, or if they were reading offline with a paper or offline in a digital format, say on a Kindle, uh, or if it were an online article or a website that they were reading, and then the other would be inside or outside of school reading. And so the way the examples that they gave us um, was that if they're reading, say, a print article, that could seem tedious, that it seemed more of an assignment and they couldn't go 
as in depth when it was an online source and have a more exploratory attitude towards learning where they could click on a hyperlink or look at a video or an image. Uh, Yet, they also said that when they're reading online, it seems endless, where when you have Mm -hmm. something that's print, you have the satisfaction of progress. You know how many pages it is or when, you know, you can see the end in sight. And they shared about how when they're reading um, on a screen, sometimes they can make that they're more alert because of the bright lights. And sometimes they'll say that the screen itself can then be a distraction. So they were really (laughs) aware of the different effect of reading in different environments, different spaces for different purposes. And that was what the finding was more about was that they are learning who they are as they're becoming readers, writers, and thinkers, and that they're noticing what works for them as learners. And that was something that was really um, an important, I think, finding for us to pay attention to, um, that students will know what will help to motivate them and to stay focused on their learning. Yeah, I think that's an important finding. I, I think that's true of, of all of us, right? Like there are moments, and it's, it's, not, it's not even con- consistent, right? Like if I've been staring at my screen all day and I know I need to read some articles at home, I'm more likely to print those out because I'm tired of staring at my screen that I've been st- staring at all day. Um, mm-hmm. Yet if I've been away from my computer all day and I've had any screen time, I have no problem hopping on and reading the articles online. Mm-hmm. So I think that's, yeah, I think that's true of, of all of us, right? That these awarenesses of what motivates us to read is not, sometimes it changes. Mm-hmm. All right, so just to recap, right? These five findings, student choice, we can still, uh, uh, the second finding, we can still use um, old reliable tools or not old, maybe I should use old, <laughs> offline <laughs> tra- traditional tools. Um, three, we can, we uh, y- young people appreciate the efficiency that these online tools provide. Uh, four, there's a, a strong sense of efficacy or being able to identify uh, misinformation online um, and interact with that misinformation. And five, an awareness um, of what motivates us in terms of, of reading. So given these five findings, uh, what are some, if you guys could offer some advice for teachers who want to kind of have more connective literacies in the classroom, want to make these connections, want to apply some of the findings in your study, uh, how would you suggest teachers kind of get started with this? Well, I can start. I think um, continuing to be learners and open to the technologies that our students are uh, that are using, um, and not being afraid of that, I think is is really key. Um, thinking about the purpose of instruction and the learning goals that you have and really leaning into um, this reality that um, no matter what the learning goal is and your purpose, that that there is going to be, and we need to be welcoming to the fluid movement between online and offline tools and just keeping an eye on what is the goal? What do I want students to learn? What do I want them to be able to do? And knowing that Online tools can support students in offline conversations. If we're structuring conversations with students in class, that 
it's okay to have technology be somehow part of that conversation if like that um, student who was able to get into the conversation when he was able to quickly um, look up some things that that's okay. You know, we shouldn't say this is a student to student conversation, leave the technology out, that sort of leaning into that idea of um, allowing the students to fluidly move between online and offline uh, resources. I think that's that's something that I could take away as a as a teacher and not to compromise on my learning goals that um, really being thoughtful about um, application of technology to address the learning goals, what's appropriate, what's not. Um, but, you know, just remembering that participants didn't share that any of those tools were really um, about removing the learning or removing the thinking from a learning experience that um, they, they really do um, they're really listening <laughs> to you. Uh, they're really, you know, like I think Jocelyn and I were both blown away that all these students just knew and could recite this crap test, you know, and they knew that. Uh, so they are listening, even though sometimes it feels like they're not. And they are able to apply uh, these lessons that we're teaching them in all kinds of ways. But um, and we need to allow them to do that in a classroom you know, our safe classroom spaces too. So. Yeah. And I think those are ways that we use them in reality as well. I, I, I appreciate that not having fear and using technology. I think sometimes to, to your point, we, we think maybe if we haven't used technology, the thinking will shut down and they'll end up just kind of copying, pasting and, and, you know, putting their paper. Um, but that's not necessarily true, right? Especially if we combine it with some of the offline tools. And I think about my own experience, like in meetings, I can't tell you how many times I've been in a meeting and someone has mentioned something, an acronym or something. I mean, I probably should know that, but I don't know what that means. And so I jump onto Google real quick just to have my background information now be in line with everybody else's because clearly everybody else know what, knew what that acronym that stood for. I right. think that's a good, healthy, fine use of technology. And mm -hmm. uh, I wouldn't want someone to take that away from me in my meetings. And I, I, I don't think we should take away from students in the classroom either um and it's really a sign of engagement really a sign yeah, of engagement is. that you want to be involved you know as opposed to looking at any time the students take out their phone and i and you know i'm i'll be real i know that a lot of times that is a disengage <laughs> disengagement but it doesn't have to be you know and removing it um you know you're removing that opportunity for the student to say oh you know what does that mean yeah, and it doesn't have to be on their phone, right? It could be on their their laptop. Yeah. Um, if I know some schools have various rules with the phone use, so it, it, it could be on the on the on the laptop. But yeah, I, mm -hmm. I I tend to agree with you there, Jocelyn. What about you? Well, I think that um, teachers are able to use this as an opportunity to help students with decision making. And earlier, Susie mentioned the metacognitive piece, really looking at how to learn and using all of our literacies on and offline and throughout that process of learning and to say, well, what is best for this reason and why and how would I approach this task? So I think that could be a place where teachers could think about using um, what is the best strategy to accomplish this learning task and then um, how will technology play a role, a really supportive role, and then trying as best as possible, maintaining a safe place, but to use as much of um, 
tools that adults are using and that are realistic that they will match up with their real world use. And I think that some of the, um, that can be difficult, I think, for teachers because they do have a lot of pressure for the um, practices to be in their control. And so they might, it might be a barrier to overcome or to figure out how to bring in um, other technologies, maybe working with other teachers to decide what's, what's possible in their school. Um, but I know, for example, a recent, my daughter was sharing with me, um, and she's in sixth grade. So she was not a part of the study. This is just an aside, but they were asked to build a, a website on a Google slide. But she knows how to use Canva and she knows how to use Google Sites. So we were talking about why. Why is it on a, a Google slide? And so I think that is just something that the teacher must have thought that would be a good, safe place and um, make positive assumptions for why the decisions were made. Um, but if we could in the future tie to as realistic of tools as possible, I think that will be a benefit to guide students in their future. And the most important, in my opinion, that we can leave students with is how to learn and that they can then learn what they need to learn in their futures and that we've guided them to that place as teachers. Yeah, I think that's well said. I I used to have an assignment. I taught high school English for 14 years and I had an infographic assignment where they created an infographic and I was been doing it forever. And I had this specific website I used all the time. And I made them use that website because like I knew this website like the back of my hand. I like I was and it was before Canva, mm -hmm. using Canva. And then um and then every year, like students would grumble more and more about this website, wanting to use other other places until I finally realized like there's the point is the infographic, right? The point is not to use the website. The point is the learning goal. The learning goal is to be able to, you know, we were doing ethos, pathos, and logos through this infographic. That's the point um, to achieve those with the infograph to show that you know, you you understand that those ideas. And it didn't matter to use Canva or any other site. Um, and honestly, if, if to your point, Jocelyn, if we were doing this in the real world um, and I was asked to create an infograph, um, I would choose the site that was most comfortable to me. I wouldn't just choose a site that someone else did just to replicate them. I would choose, no, what's most comfortable to me? I would do it do it that way because you know that's how, mm -hmm. how we would do it. Um, and sometimes it means learning a new site because my site doesn't work anymore or doesn't look as cool as someone else's site. And that's part of the process too, right? Mm -hmm. uh, so yeah, I, I, I think that's, that, that's well said. And the more... Because what also happens in that decision making and teaching students how to learn is the learning then becomes more student centered naturally, right? Because it's not just here's how we all do it. No, mm -hmm. like helping them discover how can you best kind of show your learning here. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, I think that's yeah. well said. As far as future plans with this, have you guys, this was what, 2021, you guys said? Have you guys mm -hmm. continued with this idea at all? Or are you guys branching off into new things? What, what, what are you guys working on? Well, we have designed a future study that we haven't started yet, but we would like to oh, conduct a latent, oh, yeah. <laughs> a <laughs> latent profile analysis, uh, which is used to identify um, subgroups 
within a large population using patterns of scores. And so what we're visualizing with this um, study that we've designed is that we would um, gather uh, maybe 100 adolescents and uh, they would take a battery of assessments and then we would also have an observation protocol where they would complete an online um, learning task that requires different literacy skills. Um, so we would have this setting set up where we could learn about their skills, their connective literacy skills. And then when we analyze them, we could look for patterns in their scores. We do want to, um, within this study that we're, we've put together an artifact analysis. So the students would also have their teachers share with us assignments that they are currently engaged in in their classroom that require connective literacy skills. So the teachers would submit an artifact to us that we could then use a um, artifact analysis process. So the outcome of this study would be what we were describing at the very beginning of this podcast. In our analysis process, we want to look at what are students currently being asked to do in the classroom. So that would be our artifact analysis. And then what are their skills? And we would then be, move beyond the qualitative and we would have quantitative results to say, what are their current school skills look like? So that then we can design instructional tools that would bridge that gap. And so we would then use the results of that study to design an instructional routine that teachers could use that would um, support students to use the specific cognitive process when they're engaged in acquiring, thinking, and expressing information. And then we would have um, then bridge that research to practice gap for teachers by having a set of tools that they could use. So we have a, a, a big plan, as you can tell. This <laughs> is something that will take us uh, years to achieve. Unfortunately, it would probably take a while. Um, but in the end result is that we do want to be able to build some instructional tools that would help teachers to use them in the classroom that would support this, this line of, of research. Um, and they would be a part of, so where I mentioned earlier, we're at a research center, um, the University of Kansas Center for Research on Learning. And we have a line of research that falls under strategic instruction. And this would become one of the content enhancement routines that teachers can use across content areas. And we uh, would call it a connective literacies routine. Yeah, that sounds really interesting. I mean, even any parts of that would be fascinating. Like, I'm curious about what our teachers doing in terms of this connective literacies in the classroom. What do those artifacts look like? And, and what are, and I don't, I don't have a clear understanding. Even after, I mean, I was recently in classroom as, as early as a year and a half ago in the high school classroom. I never even then even had a clear understanding of the different digital kind of skills my students had. Um, it was hard to tell sometimes. Mm -hmm. uh, some of them would shock me and I thought there would be no, and then I would see with stuff they're involved on outside of school. I'd be like, whoa, you're capable of doing all this. Uh, mm -hmm. Finding ways to tie it in the classroom. I think all that is really interesting because we don't, we know that we need to be using more technology in the classroom. And we know we need to be doing it in ways beyond, not to knock programs like Kahoot or Bluckit, but, but beyond that in ways that are being really used um, in the world. Uh, mm -hmm. And 
and we know students are able to do stuff, a bunch of stuff at home. And and like, but we're struggling, I feel like in the classroom of bringing all this, of making this all work and making it all fit, of finding ways to tap into what they're doing at home to achieve the learning goals in class in a way that's efficient and productive. And so it sounds like that study is, is helping to get at that, this tricky thing that all I feel like teachers are dealing with right now. Yeah. Susie, anything to add? Is that, is that the, are you on board with Jocelyn here? I'm on board with Jocelyn. <laughs> she wants to go, I'm going. Now, I, I think everything that she said for sure, and I think um, for us just continuing to be driven by our own curiosity, I think that's a really, um, it's so exciting, you know, this this work, but just getting to, um, you know, work with high school teachers, work with middle school teachers, work with kids, and just stay curious and try to understand where are they? Where are they going? What's required there? You know, it's just so, so intriguing to me. Like I was saying at the beginning, just trying to understand better where, what are these spaces that our kids are engaged in and um, what do they know? I mean, they seem to know so much about how to be cool in, you know, discord, <laughs> for example, yeah. you know, and, and I get on there, I'm like, so would I say this? No, you wouldn't say that, <laughs> you know, like, what do you know, you know, so I'm just continuously um, curious about all of these different channels of communication, how our students are engaging in them, and, and do, do they understand how much they know about stuff? And how can I make connections with uh, everything that they know and are thinking about in those spaces with what I'm wanting them to learn about, you know, whatever literature I'm teaching in the classroom or whatever writing skills. So, yeah. Yeah. Matt, if I could just highlight something Susie said that I think is really important to both of us that you may have sure. picked up on is listening to adolescents and then partnering with them. And we also think the same with teachers that with whatever we're building, that part of that design process will be hearing from teachers to say, is this something that's realistic that you would want to use with your students? And so that'll be built into the process uh, and partnering with then adolescents so that we can have feedback on, um, is this something that will really integrate your offline and online knowledge and skills? And so we, um, I think in our work, we, from the very beginning, are trying to include adolescents and then our next step is including teachers. Yeah, I think that's well said because you can talk all day about theory. Like we know we should be connecting these home and school, but if students don't buy in or students aren't seeing the connection and teachers aren't having relationships with students and aren't really investing to try to make these connections, then it doesn't really matter. You talk about theory all day, right? It comes down to the actual people involved in the process. Um, so I think that's well said. Well, Jocelyn, a Washburn, Susie Myers, I appreciate you guys spending the time and talking to me about your study. Thank you, Matt. Thank you so much. Great opportunity. Yes.